Good morning again. You know, um, I think our church is the most beautiful when I see our church doing two things. One, when I see our church worshiping and loving God in response to the gospel. You are never more beautiful than when you're just adoring worship to our risen and living Savior. And secondly, you're also so beautiful when you're loving and serving other people, when you're loving and serving our neighbors. And so just so grateful that I get to be your pastor and to serve you in this way uh, because you really are a beautiful, beautiful church. Well, we've been studying the book of Acts uh, this year, and the goal of this study really is for us to learn what it means to be the church as we study the early church in the book of Acts. And the title of today's sermon is the ministry of Philip. And I think we're going to learn a lot about what it means to be the church as we study Philip and the ministry that God called him to do. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 8. And we're going to read from verse 4 to 8 now and then read some other scripture uh, later in the service or in the sermon. Now, last week, we learned that God sovereignly used persecution to scatter the church from Jerusalem and really to send the church into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And the scattered Christians who were scattered from Jerusalem preached the gospel wherever they went. And so they were the ones that brought the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And one of the Christians who was scattered to Samaria was Philip. As you recall, Philip was one of the seven deacons. Uh, ordained by the Jerusalem church to care for the widows. And today, Luke will tell us a little something about the ministry that Philip did in Samaria and beyond. So people of God, this is the word of God. Please give it your careful attention. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying out with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of God. Here's the uh, outline for today's sermon. We're going to look at three things first. Uh, Philip's public ministry of the gospel in Samaria. Second, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. And third, Philip's private ministry of the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. Let's start with Philip's public ministry in Samaria. Now, verse 5 tells us that Philip went down to a city in Samaria, and there he proclaimed to them the Christ. In verses 4 and 5, there are two phrases that are used interchangeably. Preaching the word and proclaiming the Christ are used interchangeably. What that means is, preaching the word means proclaiming Christ. If you want to faithfully and truly preach the word of God, then you must proclaim the Christ. If you preach the word in a Christless way, If you somehow preach the word in a way where Christ is not at the center of your sermon, then you have not truly preached the word. To preach the word truly and faithfully means to proclaim Christ. To proclaim who Christ is, to proclaim what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, what Christ will do one day, and what it means to follow and honor and obey 
Christ. In other words, to preach the word means to proclaim the gospel and the responses that the gospel requires and asks for. Now, uh, Philip's public ministry of the gospel in Samaria was significant for two reasons. Here's the first reason. You see, Philip's ministry in Samaria officially initiated the second phase of the church's mission. Jesus said that his church would be his witnesses in three uh, phases or in three places. First, uh, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem. Second, they would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And third, they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. With Philip's ministry of the gospel in Samaria, the church had officially initiated the second phase of her mission. And interestingly, it was the non-apostles who first went to Judea and Samaria and preached the gospel there. We're going to see later on, the apostles came after Philip in order to verify and to confirm that the gospel was really being believed by the Samaritans. But isn't it cool that it was lay Christians? Not the apostles, not the professional clergy who first brought the gospel to Samaria. I love that. Here's the second reason why Philip's ministry was so significant. It's because it demonstrated the power of the gospel to overcome hostility between people groups. I think it's really hard for us to appreciate uh, the boldness of Philip to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Because I don't think we can really appreciate the hostility and the hatred and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. It might be kind of like what we might see today between the Jews and the Palestinians. A lot of animosity, hatred, and hostility. The Jews despised the Samaritans as inferior because they believed that the Samaritans were a racial and religious hybrids. They were impure in the eyes of the Jews, impure racially and impure religiously. And so Jews and Samaritans hated each other. But Philip went to preach the gospel in a city full of people that Jews hated and despised. Do you know what that means? It means that the gospel had radically and totally changed and transformed Philip. You see, before Philip had believed and and was changed by the gospel, he, like any other Jew, would have regarded Samaritans as too evil, too hopeless, and too lost to be saved. But the gospel had changed Philip. The gospel had shown Philip that everyone was sinful, everyone was hopeless, everyone was lost apart from the gospel. In fact, no one was more hopeless, more lost, or more evil than anyone else. The gospel had shown Philip that no one was so bad that they were beyond the reach of God's grace. And also at the same time, no one was so good that they were beyond the need of God's grace. The gospel had eradicated any sense of superiority that Philip might have had toward the Samaritans as he realized that everyone was a sinner who needed to be saved, including him. And that everyone uh, who calls upon the Lord for salvation can be saved, even Samaritans. And Philip's ministry of the gospel consisted of both words and deeds. Now, according to verse 5, Philip proclaimed the Christ. 
Philip boldly proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God and that he was the Messiah that God had promised and that Jesus came and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and that he was raised from the dead for their salvation and that he would come again one day to judge the living and the dead. Philip boldly preached a beautiful gospel of how God loves sinners and has saved sinners in his son, Jesus Christ. Philip declared the love of Christ with his beautiful words. And Philip also ministered the gospel with beautiful deeds. According to verse 7, Philip healed sick people and cast out demons. Now, I think we have to stop being, like, distracted by the apostles doing signs and wonders as if they're doing magic tricks. Well, they, they did magic tricks. They could do miraculous things. We can't do anything like that, so there's no application for us. We have to stop thinking about that or thinking about it in that way. You see, Philip was simply loving people and doing what he could to relieve their suffering. See, when Philip saw the physical misery around him paralyzed and lame people, he sought to, uh, to relieve it, and that's why he healed them, because he loved them. And when Philip saw the spiritual bondage that people were under, uh, 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 um, demonic oppression, he wanted to liberate them, and that's why he cast demons out, to liberate people from demonic oppression. With the miraculous healings and the the miraculous casting out of demons, Philip was giving a glimpse and a preview of heaven. Because in heaven, there are no more demons. In heaven, there is no more disease. In heaven, there is no more paralysis, no more lameness, no more sickness. Philip demonstrated the love of Christ with his beautiful deeds. His works were, were more loving than they were miraculous. We have to understand that. You see, Philip loved people, and he sought to meet all of their needs. And whatever diminished, debilitated, devalued, or demeaned people, Philip sought to address and to heal those things with both his beautiful words and with his beautiful deeds. And so when the crowds came to listen to uh, Philip's preaching, they paid great attention to him because he was doing beautiful and loving things for the people by healing them and sending them free from their bondage and oppression to demons. And there was much joy in that city because Philip was ministering the gospel in both word and deed. Christ central. If we want to do ministry like Philip, then we too must do, then we too must minister the gospel in both word and deed. Now, unlike Philip, we, do, we don't have the power to heal the sick miraculously or to cast out demons. But we do have the power to love people. And we can love and serve our neighbors with ordinary acts of kindness, mercy, and love. You see, when we see the brokenness in the lives of people around us, when we see needs of people around us, when we see that people are being demeaned, devalued or dehumanized, loving our neighbors means that we do what we can to meet their needs and to advocate for their holistic welfare. We must not only declare the love of Christ with our beautiful words, but we must also demonstrate the love of Christ with our beautiful deeds. And that's why I'm so grateful that our church partners with uh, Christian organizations like Western Fairfax Christian Ministries, and, and they help us uh, to do what I think is one of the most important things that we do at our church, which is uh, our holiday basket ministry. 
Friends, I want you to understand, uh, when, when we gather food and package the food into baskets and, and we distribute them to needy and vulnerable f- uh, families in Centerville, we're not just um, doing an optional thing. We're not just doing kind of a, a thing that makes us feel good. We're actually ministering the gospel with beautiful deeds. It is our opportunity to, to, to demonstrate the love of Jesus for people in practical, tangible, and beautiful ways. And so, Christ Central, we cannot be content that we minister the gospel simply with our words. We must demonstrate the love of Christ with our deeds of mercy and kindness. And so, um, whether as individuals or as families or maybe even as community groups, let me encourage you to, uh, to consider... Um, participating in different mercy ministry opportunities at our church because that is part of what it means to follow Jesus. That is part of what it means of you worshiping the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so pay attention in the weeks to come and to the different uh, local mercy ministry opportunities and take advantage of not only speaking beautiful words but showing the love of Christ with your beautiful deeds. Amen? I think we all need to grow in that area. It's going to require sacrifice your time, your money, your effort. But we can't just talk about the love of Jesus. We have to demonstrate it in practical and tangible ways. Um, So Philip's uh, public ministry of the gospel consisted of both speaking words and doing deeds. Next, let's look at the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. Now turn with me to verse 14. And we're going to read to verse 17. And this is a very interesting passage of Scripture. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Luke describes the Samaritans as having believed in Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke notes that this is odd and peculiar because ever since Pentecost until now, Jewish believers received both the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit at the same time, the moment that they repented and believed. But in this situation, strangely and oddly, the Samaritans believed in Jesus, they were baptized in his name, but they had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's going on here? What's happening? Why the delay in the giving of the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans. Now, a Bible scholar, uh, John Stott, explained it like this. The most natural explanation of the delayed gift of the Spirit is that this was the first occasion on which the gospel had been proclaimed not only outside of Jerusalem, but inside Samaria. The, de- the delay was only temporary until the apostles had come down to investigate, had endorsed Philip's bold policy of Samaritan evangelism, had prayed for the converts, and had thus given a public sign to the whole church, as well as to the Samaritan converts themselves, that they were bona fide Christians to be incorporated into the redeemed community on precisely the same terms as Jewish converts. John Stott basically gave two reasons why this delay happened. Here's the first. 
the gospel was breaking new ground. This was the first time the gospel was being preached outside of Jerusalem and in Samaria. Again, in in the book of Acts, we're going to find that there are three distinct uh, occasions when the Holy Spirit was given in an unusual, supernatural, and powerful way. And they would correlate to what Jesus said the church's mission would be. As you recall, the church's mission would unfold in three stages. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And the giving of the Holy Spirit correlates with those three times. The first time the Holy Spirit was given in an unusual and powerful way was when the gospel was being preached in Jerusalem. The second time that the Holy Spirit was given in an unusual and powerful way was was when the gospel was being preached in Samaria. And the third time, we're going to see this later on, when the gospel was given in an unusual and powerful way was when Cornelius and his family were converted because Cornelius was a Gentile and he represented the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit fell on believers in a special way three times in the book of Acts and it represented, and each time it represented that the next phase of the church's mission was unfolding. And the one constant in all three of the givings of the Holy Spirit was the presence of an apostle. The apostle Peter was present at each time the Holy Spirit was given in this unusual and powerful way all three times. Second, the the special giving of the Holy Spirit was a public sign of the full inclusion of Samaritans. You see, the gospel had been welcomed by the Samaritans. But would the Jews... Welcome, the Samaritans. You see, it was very hard for Jewish Christians to believe that Samaritans, the despised and dirty Samaritans, could actually be saved and would actually be invited into the family of God. So this was a sign from the risen Lord Jesus Jesus himself that even the Samaritans uh, were truly saved and that they were fully included into his family and into his body. So by giving them the Holy Spirit in a public and powerful way, the risen Lord Jesus was publicly demonstrating and declaring that he welcomed Samaritans. And if he welcomed the Samaritans, then the Jewish believers must welcome them as well. You see, Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between people groups who were once at odds with one another. The dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Samaritans torn down by the gospel. The dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles torn down by the power of the gospel. You see, uh, the dividing wall of hostility between different races torn down by the power of the gospel. Every dividing wall of hostility between any group of people, the gospel can and the gospel must tear down. Later, um, in the other parts of the New Testament, we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul that the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. That means that everyone who has the Holy Spirit is united to one another because they're all united to one body, to the one body of Christ. Let me explain it this way. If you have the Holy Spirit, that means you're united to Christ. If I have the Holy Spirit, I'm united to Christ. And do you know what that means? We're united to one another because we're united to the same body, to the same Christ. 
You see, no matter how different we may be from one another, whether racially, ethnically, gender, socioeconomically, no matter how different we may be from one another, we're united because we are together united to the same body. Whoever has the Spirit of Christ living in them, I am united to that person, and we're, and we're part of the same family of God. Do you know who your true family is? Your true family? It's not just the people that you uh, share the same blood with. It's the people that you uh, share the same Holy Spirit with. And everyone that has the Holy Spirit living in them, they are your brother and your sister in Christ. No matter their race, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their gender, no matter anything, if they have the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit, you're family. And we belong to the same Christ. Now, there's an important question here that I want to answer because it's caused some uh, controversy and confusion in the Christian church. And the question is this. Was the Samaritan's experience of believing the gospel and being baptized first and then later receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, was that experience descriptive or prescriptive? Was Luke just describing what happened to the Samaritans? Or was Luke telling the church that what happened to the Samaritans was to be the regular and the normative experience for all Christians so that all Christians should first believe in Jesus and be baptized and then at a later time receive the Holy Spirit? Now, some of our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ, by the way, let me just say this, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And what we're going to be talking about now is what I call a secondary issue. Uh, it's an important issue, but it's not an issue that divides us, okay? But there are some differences among Christians. And there are some Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ who believe and teach that the experience of the Samaritans is prescriptive and normative for all Christians. What that means is they believe and teach that all Christians must first believe in Jesus and be baptized in his name. And then at a later time, whether it's a day later or a week later or a year later, at a later time, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they call this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And usually, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is accompanied with some kind of manifestation of a spiritual gift. Um, usually, uh, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, or what they understand to be uh, the gift of speaking in tongues. Friends, as Reformed Christians, which we are at, at, at our church, we don't believe that. We believe that the experience of the Samaritans was descriptive and not prescriptive. We believe that it was unique to their experience at that time in redemptive history and in the unfolding mission of the church. It was not meant to be normative or prescriptive for the rest of the church after them. The giving of the Holy Spirit in that special way to the Samaritans was, again, to mark that the second phase of the church's mission to be witnesses for Jesus had begun. So what we as Reformed Christians believe is this. What is prescriptive, what is normative, uh, was what the Apostle Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. That the moment you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, you receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit at the very same time. There is no delay. You're given the Holy Spirit the moment that you believe along with the forgiveness of your sins. You see, at the moment of faith in Christ, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
That means the Holy Spirit lives in you, dwells in you, and he begins to work in your, in your life, sanctifying you and conforming you into the image of Christ. Also, as Reformed Christians, we believe that the true evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is not the manifestation of so-called spiritual gifts in your life, but the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. How can you tell if someone truly has the Holy Spirit living inside them? Is it because they're able to speak in tongues? Or they're able to do some spiritual gifting? No. You can tell because he or she is bearing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. You can tell because this person There's an increasing and growing love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in their lives. You see, a changed life that resembles Jesus more and more, a changed life that loves God and people more and more, that is the true and beautiful evidence that the Holy Spirit lives inside you and not the presence of so-called spiritual gifts. Lastly, let's consider Philip's private ministry of the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And now we're going to turn to verse 26 and read all the way to the end of the chapter, to verse 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage, passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself? Or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So God told Philip to do something strange. Philip had a vibrant, booming, thriving Fruitful ministry in Samaria. People were coming to faith in Christ. There was joy in the city. Now why would God tell Philip to leave all of that 
and to go to a desert where there were no people. Why would God do that? It's because there was an Ethiopian eunuch in the desert that God wanted to save. And so God sent Philip to share the gospel with him. You see, to God, one person in the desert is just as important to him as hundreds of people in the city. And God loves and desires to save people in all places, in city centers, in the suburbs, in the rural countryside, and even in the desert. And that's why the church must be witnesses of Jesus in every place where people live, work, and play. So God sent Philip to to this desert so that he could evangelize to a traveling Ethiopian eunuch. So this man was a black man because he was from Africa. And he was also a eunuch, which means that he was uh, castrated from his youth uh, so that he could serve in government. And this was a common practice at that time where where men who were being groomed for administrative leadership uh, were castrated so they could do their work without distraction. And this man apparently uh, was very good at what he did. He rose to a very high-ranking level. So he was a, a very high court official. He was in charge of the entire treasury of the queen uh, of the Ethiopians. And this eunuch, this court official, went to Jerusalem, went to the temple so that he could worship God. So, uh, so he, he obviously he was not a Jew, but he was very inter- interested in the Jewish religion. And we can just imagine the kind of reception that this Ethiopian eunuch received when he got to the temple. Probably not a warm one, because one, not only was he a Gentile, but he was also a eunuch. And the Old Testament forbade uh, eunuchs from entering into the presence of God. But we don't know what his experience at the temple is like, but we do know this, that he was going back home. And obviously he was very rich because he was in possession of a scripture and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And Philip obeyed the Holy Spirit and ran up to the chariot. And he overheard the eunuch reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him, hey, do you even understand what you're reading? And the guy said, I don't know. How how, how will I know unless someone explains it to me? And then he invited Philip into his chariot. And then the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, was reading from Isaiah 53, to uh, to be more specific, where it talked about a human sufferer. Someone that would be like a lamb led to slaughter. Someone that would be quiet as he faced death. Someone that died an unjust death in his humiliation. And the eunuch asked Philip, so who's this guy talking about? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip took that opportunity to say he was talking about Jesus. So he opened his mouth and he preached Jesus the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, the Holy Spirit was working in his heart, uh, brought him to faith and said, hey, I want to believe in Jesus. And then as they were passing by some water, he said, hey, there's some water. Can I get baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? And so they go down and Philip baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. And then the Holy Spirit takes Philip away. And then Ethiopian's like, oh, there's no Philip, but I'm, I'm a Christian now. And he goes on his way rejoicing. I think that's so important. This Philip's ministry began with rejoicing and it ends with rejoicing. It seems like wherever Philip went, he brought people joy. Whether it was Samaritans in the city or to a lone Ethiopian in the desert because of his ministry, the gospel always bringing joy. Now what's the takeaway for today? What I want to do is I want to conclude my sermon today by uh, considering some important lessons about evangelism that I think we can learn from Philip's uh, private and personal evangelism to the Ethiopian. And here's the first lesson. 
God guides us into divine appointments to share the gospel. Just as God guided Philip to share the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch, so God guides us, or the Holy Spirit guides us, to share the gospel with people that he loves and wants to save. Do you realize that when God wants to save someone, what does he do? He sends someone to that person so that that person can hear the gospel and believe the gospel and be saved. That means, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will provide divine opportunities for you to share the gospel with people. And our job is not to be so preoccupied and so focused on our work or our recreation or our own families or whatever it is that we're so preoccupied with that we miss divine opportunities to share the gospel with the people in our lives, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, or what have you. Now, can I encourage you, like every morning, get up and pray something like this. God, in whose life are you already working? And who do you want me to share the gospel with today? Friends, do you realize that before Philip went to see the Ethiopian eunuch, the Holy Spirit was already working on his heart? That's why he went to the temple. That's why he was reading scripture. And Philip obeyed the Holy Spirit and shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And so, friends, every one of us, there are opportunities to share the gospel. We just have to open our eyes and prayerfully discern them. Friends, do you realize that your main goal in life is not to make a lot of money or to be great parents or to be wildly successful at your career? Those things are good and important. But your first and fundamental calling as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is to be a witness for Christ to the people in your life. Here's a second. We can share the gospel with people who are very different from us. Think about this. Here's an Ethiopian court official, one of the highest ranking members of his government, and Philip, uh, uh, a Jewish peasant, right? They are as different as they can be in two totally different social economic classes, and yet you have Philip sharing the gospel with the eunuch. I know uh, sometimes we feel like the only people that we have legitimacy to speak with are people that are on our same level or maybe who we think is below us. <laughs> there are people in your life who are far more accomplished than you, far more powerful than you, far richer than you, far whatever than you. And sometimes we can feel insecure about, like, what, what, what can I share with them because they're so much more advanced or accomplished than I am. Friends, the gospel allows us to not be afraid or, or, or reluctant in those situations anymore. Who cares if they're richer than you? Who cares if, if, if they're the CEO? Who cares if they're more powerful? It doesn't matter. You can talk to anyone about Jesus. We no longer have to be afraid to talk about Jesus with people who we think are so different from us. If Philip can talk to an Ethiopian eunuch who is a court official, we can talk to anybody as well. And here's a third. We must not be prejudiced. I love the fact that one of the first conversion stories in the book of Acts is that a Jewish man led a black man to faith in Christ. Philip did not let his racial prejudice for a black Gentile keep him from warmly and lovingly sharing the gospel with him. You see, friends, the gospel gives us the power to cross racial lines and to tear down the dividing wall of hostility between races and to love others who are different from us 
racially and economic or, or ethnically. And fourth, and I love this, we can start uh, sharing the gospel by asking a question. Don't you love that uh, Philip didn't just kind of give a canned gospel presentation to the Ethiopian eunuch? He waited to see what the Ethiopian eunuch, what kind of questions he was asking, what was burdening his heart. And what Philip did was, once he figured out the things that were on the Ethiopian eunuch's heart, then he shared the gospel as an answer to his questions. Philip did not answer questions that the eunuch was not asking. He answered the questions that the Ethiopian eunuch was asking, and he answered it with the gospel. Friends, when we evangelize to our family or friends or coworkers, we can share the gospel in such a way where we're uh, sharing the gospel as as the answer to their deepest longings, yearnings, and desires. Maybe their deepest longing is for justice in an unjust world then you can show them how the gospel promises true and perfect justice in the world to come. Or maybe their deepest longing is for healing from sickness or some sort of brokenness in their lives. And then we can share the gospel and the promises of the gospel of the hope of resurrection, the hope of restoration, the hope that one day everything will be the way it was supposed to be. Or maybe their deepest longing is for unconditional love. Maybe their whole life they've always had to perform and and feel like they've always had to prove themselves to win people's love for them. And maybe we can explain to them how in the gospel God gives us unconditional love that we never have to earn or perform for or, or to merit, that he gives it freely in his son Jesus. Or maybe their deepest longing is for forgiveness because they're struggling with deep shame and guilt over what they've done in the past. And then we can share the gospel in such a way where the gospel offers the full and perfect and complete forgiveness of all of their sins. And it offers them true acceptance, the acceptance of the only one whose acceptance truly matters. Who cares if you're accepted by friends or, or, or colleagues or parents, but if you're not accepted by God? And in Christ, we get the acceptance that truly matters, that we all long for. And I think that's such an important lesson for us, that we use the gospel to answer the deep questions and the the deep desires that the people in our lives have and are asking. Fifth, uh, we can evangelize by doing Bible study. Do you realize what Philip was doing here? He did one-on-one Bible study with this Ethiopian eunuch. He looked at a passage of Scripture together. They looked at it together, and he was basically studying what the Bible said about Jesus. Friends, this may be one of the most effective ways for us to share our faith, where we invite someone, uh, whether it's one-on-one or maybe in a small group, hey, let's study the Bible together, and let's see what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And you can do it for maybe an hour. Maybe you can do it for six weeks. It doesn't matter. But you uh, study the Word of God together, and you show the person that you want to evangelize to what the Bible has to say about Jesus. And that's a very effective way to share your faith. And sixth, and lastly, and I think this is going to be very important, especially in our day and age, where uh, what's, I think, culturally taboo today is to try to convert people, right? To try to impose your religious beliefs on other people. But uh, I want you to be encouraged that Philip didn't do this. Um, we are to encourage people to a point of trusting and obeying Jesus, and the first sign of faith and obedience is getting baptized. Philip baptized the eunuch. 
Do you know what that means? As Philip was explaining who Jesus was uh, as the Messiah, some part of his gospel presentation was the need to be baptized. How else would the eunuch have known, hey, here's some water, what prevents me from being baptized? It's because Philip must have told him, hey, if you believe in Jesus and if you follow, if you want to follow Jesus, Jesus commands that all of his followers be baptized in his name. And that's the public sign that you follow him. Friends, we must not be shy or awkward about inviting people to believe the gospel when we share with them. It's one thing to share the gospel. It's another thing to invite people to respond to the gospel with faith and repentance and, 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 with, uh, and with baptism. And so I know in our culture, that's, that's, that's taboo uh, because we're trying to impose our religious beliefs on others. But that's part of what evangelism is. You don't just tell them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but we also invite people to respond to Jesus with faith, repentance. And you do that. Your first step of that is by being baptized. So Christ Central family, back to this question. What does it mean to be the church? Very simply, very clearly, very profoundly, it means this. That we are called to minister the gospel with both our beautiful words and our beautiful deeds. And as the Holy Spirit fills and empowers us, Christ's central family, let's be the church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for your word and for the example of Philip's ministry. It, it shows us just so clearly from your word uh, what you want us to be as a church. You want us to be a community that ministers the gospel with both our words and our deeds. You want us to be a church that both declares the love of Jesus with our beautiful words and also demonstrates the love of Jesus with our beautiful deeds. Would you help us to do that for your glory? and for the joy of Greater Metro DC. Amen.